Mrs. Smith was a teacher at a local preschool. One day she was supervising the children as they played outside in the playground. She noticed that one of the little boys, we'll call him Bobby, was making faces at the other children in the playground. Smiling sweetly, she walked up to the little boy and she said, Now, Bobby, when I was a little girl, I was told that if I made ugly faces, it would freeze and my face would stay like that. Bobby looked up at her and he said, Well, you can't say you weren't warned. When it comes to today's topic, I want to quote little Bobby. You can't say you weren't warned. We're in the middle of a series here at Broadway that's dedicated to investigating some of the stranger stories in the Bible. Stories they probably didn't tell you in Sunday school. Now, today's story involves a rather graphic depiction of an undeniably violent act. It's graphic, it's violent, and it's in the Bible. The question we're trying to answer in the next few minutes are these. What actually happened in this story, and what can we learn from it? So brace yourself as we investigate the events surrounding one of the stranger stories in the Bible. It's the story of Jael and the tent peg. You can't say you weren't warned. All right. Today's story is found in the Old Testament book known as Judges. Now, Judges documents what took place in Israel's history between 1400 and 1100 B.C., So it covers those 300 years between the death of Joshua and the reign of King Saul. Now, Joshua was the guy who took over after Moses died. And 300 years later, Saul was the first person to ever be crowned king of Israel, just before David. Now, during that 300-year period between Joshua and Saul, Israel had no single defined political leader. During that 300-year period, Israel was a loose gathering of tribes united around their shared worship of Yahweh or Jehovah. Now, during this period in history, these tribes tended to wander off into idolatry. In fact, the author of Judges says that during that 300-year period, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, when they wandered, God would use foreign armies as a way of disciplining them and steering them back onto the right path. Foreign armies would threaten and invade Israel. God would respond by raising up random charismatic military leaders to rally the people and defeat the foreign invaders. Now, these random leaders were referred to as judges, which is why it's called the Book of Judges. Now, one of those random charismatic military leaders was a woman named Deborah. Now, Deborah is introduced to us as the fourth, in the fourth chapter of Judges. Deborah was a highly influential woman in her day. She was first recognized as a prophet, and then that gave her national prominence as a national leader, which then gave her authority as a military leader. Now, Deborah helped lead Israel for about 60 years. And her head office, so to speak, was famously located under a palm tree, which became known as the Palm of Deborah. Now, during this time, Israel had been wandering from God, so God allowed the Israelites to be harassed by a Canaanite king named Jabin. So we've got Deborah and Jabin. Now, King Jabin sent an army to Israel under the command of a guy named Sisera. So let's make sure that we get all of this straight. Deborah is a prophet and a Jewish leader. Jabin is the Canaanite king, 
And Sisera is the commander of the army that King Jabin sent to harass and torment Deborah and Israel. In fact, the Bible says that Sisera had 900 chariots fitted with iron. And the Bible also records that Sisera used that army and those armor-plated chariots to cruelly oppress the Israelites for 20 years. Basically, Sisera was a bully. So he had an army of thousands with 900 chariots pulled by teams of horses. And if those 900 chariots weren't intimidating enough, they were covered with iron. Think of them as ancient tanks. So you've got Sisera armed to the teeth, wandering through the land of Israel for 20 years, taunting and tormenting, raping or killing anyone that comes in his path. You read about that. It's implied in Judges chapter 5. So for 20 years, Sisera had been harming and humiliating Israel. As you can imagine, the Bible says the people of Israel, and I quote, cried to the Lord for help. Well, God heard their cry, and he gave the prophet Deborah a plan. So Deborah summoned um, an Israelite by the name of Barak to a meeting under her palm tree, and he, she told him how to defeat Sisera and his army. So Barak, the Israelite, he agreed to do whatever Deborah told him to do, but he said he would only do it if Deborah would come with him in the battle. And Deborah said, no problem, I'll go with you. But because of your hesitation, you're not going to get the honor that will come with this victory. Instead, the honor is going to be given to a woman. Well, the battle takes place under some unusual circumstances. According to a later report in Judges 5, during the battle, the heavens just opened up and the rain poured down in buckets. And that caused Sisera's iron chariots to get stuck in the mud. Let's pick up the story from there as recorded in Judges chapter 4. It'll be on the screen. The Bible says, Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Heresheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite because there was an alliance between Jabin king of Hazor, the Canaanite, and the family of Heber, the Kenite. Now, by the way, we've titled today's teaching the story of Jael and the tent peg, and here we finally get to meet Jael. Jael was a woman and a wife, apparently alone at home on this day, out in the Judean wilderness. Sisera, the army commander, defeated and running for his life, uh, reaches the tent of Heber and Jael, a couple who apparently were officially neutral when it came to the ongoing battle between Israel and the Canaanites. Now the Bible says, let's pick it up again, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. And then he said, stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Now, just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. 
Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. And on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. In the words of little Bobby, you can't say you weren't warned. It's one of the stranger stories in the Bible, isn't it? I wonder how many of you were taught this story in Sunday school. It's pretty graphic. It's pretty gruesome, but it's in the Bible. So what's going on here? Why is it in the Bible? Well, it's in the Bible because it actually happened, for one thing. But let's continue our investigation by confronting the content. Now, you should know that not everyone over the centuries has agreed on how to handle this story. Not every Bible scholar thinks that J.L. was a hero. She's had her fair share of critics over the years, critics who have denounced her actions. In fact, according to them, J.L.'s actions are indefensible. Killing a man in cold blood is never justified, they say. You see, you need to understand this. Back then, a few thousand years ago, hospitality was everything. You didn't have hotels and motels where people could stay. So they relied on one another to be faithful and honorable hosts in their homes. And so when this guy comes along to her tent, a guy who says, hey, you and your husband are neutral in this war, he thought he was safe. And she pretended like he was safe. Oh, come on in, she said. You have nothing to fear here. Don't be afraid. And he asked for water. She says, water? I'm going to give you milk. So she gives him some warm milk and she welcomes him and hides him under a blanket, pretending that she's there to protect him, pretending that he was safe. Well, they say, this is a terrible thing that she's done. She's gone against every social norm. She, she deceived him. Well, that's why her critics denounce her. Hey, maybe you find yourself agreeing with them. A friend of mine once said to me years ago, Darren, you're never a complete failure. Sometimes you can be used as a bad example. Maybe you feel that jail story is in the Bible simply to be held up as a bad example. Fair enough. But you should know that there are those who are on the other side of the spectrum. We've listened to why her critics denounce her. Now let's look at what her supporters declare about her. And it should be noted that the prophet Deborah was one of J.L.'s supporters. In fact, in the next chapter of the book of Judges, Deborah writes a song celebrating what J.L. did. In fact, Deborah describes Jael using a term later used to describe Mary, the mother of Jesus. Deborah calls Jael most blessed of women. Some call her a cold-blooded killer, while others call her the most blessed of women. How can people vary so widely? Personally, I think Jael's critics today are looking back at her 1100 BC actions through a lens shaped by our 21st century AD circumstances. Think in these terms. A teenage boy went into the house and informed his mother that he had lost his contact lens while he was playing basketball in the driveway. He casually says, ah, mom, I looked, but I can't find it. 15 minutes later, the mother comes into the house with the contact lens in her hand. And the kid says, how did you find it? And the mother says, simple, you were looking for a piece of plastic. I was looking for something that cost us hundreds of dollars. 
Sometimes in life, how we look determines what we see. Well, to understand what JL was experiencing at that moment in time, you need to look closely at the full context of her actions. She was living during a time of political chaos and upheaval. She was living during a time when people dwelt in constant fear. A time when life consisted of hiding from an enemy that was more powerful than them. She was living during a time of lawlessness, a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So she was living during a time of open warfare. Remember, a battle that saw thousands of men destroyed took place literally on her doorstep, the doorstep of her tent. And into her tent walked the man responsible for that battle. Now, unlike King David, when he was uh, praised for passing up an opportunity to kill Saul, Jael wasn't dealing with God's anointed king, leading God's chosen people. No, Jael was dealing with a Canaanite commander trying to destroy God's people. Into her tent walked the man who was the source of 20 years worth of trauma. Into her tent walked the man who was the source of 20 years worth of cruelty and bloodshed. J.L. had a decision to make. The man who has been hunting and haunting and humiliating the people of Israel for decades is on the run and in her tent. And at that particular moment, she was all alone. She had no husband or no help close by. She wasn't in a subdivision where she could call out to a neighbor next door. She was in a tent in the middle of nowhere. So what was she to do? It's not as though she could discreetly call 911 and try to stall until the cops showed up. There was no 911. There were no cops. There was no government. There were no authorities. She was all alone in a tent in the middle of nowhere. And into that tent in the middle of nowhere walked a tyrant. JL had a decision to make. Now, her critics denounce her as a cold-blooded killer. Her supporters declare that JL did what she had to do during a time of war. She had the opportunity to eliminate the source of 20 years where the bloodshed and torment, and she acted upon it. JL supporters recognize that she was in the middle of a war. She was in the middle of a battlefield. She was face to face with a man who had devoted his life to destroying the people around her. She could hide him or she could harm him. She could comfort him or she could kill him. As Sisera lay hidden under that blanket in her tent, exhausted from the battle and soothed by the warm milk, I don't doubt that J.L. thought long and hard about what needed to be done. I don't doubt that something like this came to her mind. She probably thought, if Sisera lives to fight another day, Sisera will fight another day. If I don't kill Sisera, Sisera will kill others. So she made her decision. She picked her weapon and she seized her opportunity. Now, whatever you think of her actions and whatever you feel you would have done if you had been in her place, the people of Israel thought she was a hero. And the facts of history can't be ignored. Because of what happened that day, the terrorizing of the land ceased. In fact, history records that the Canaanite army never recovered from that defeat. 
History records that the Canaanites ceased to be a dominant power on the world stage from that day forward. So what can we learn from this story? What, what can we apply to our lives today? Let me ask you this. Is there an enemy hiding in the tent of your life? As you sit there and watching today, is there some hidden habit, some private pattern, some secret sin, some untold trauma that lay tucked under a blanket deep inside your soul? Up until this moment in your life, you have been content to look the other way. Like Heber and Jael, you've remained neutral. When it came to the tormentor in your tent, you've never really taken a stand. You've tried to straddle the fence. You've tried to coexist. But deep down, you've always known that that tormentor is not your friend. It's your enemy. It's never helped you. It's only harmed you. It doesn't have a history of defending your life. It has a history of destroying your life. Yet there it lies within your grasp. There it lies, safely tucked beneath a blanket in your heart. Up until this moment in time, you've let it live. Up until this moment in time, instead of harming it, you've been content to hide it. Today, the Spirit of God is challenging all of us to learn the lesson of JL, to realize that we too are in a war to recognize that we too live on the edge of a battlefield. Just like JL, we too have an opportunity to eliminate a source of torment in our lives. Now for some, it may be a source of intense guilt. For others, it may be a source of immense shame. For many, it may be some lingering, long-standing, unresolved trauma. Whatever our situation, today, like JL, we need to put a peg in the ground. Today, like JL, we need to say no more, no longer. The torment ends now. Like JL, we too need to seize the moment and act upon it. Like JL, we too need to see our tormentor for what it is. Just like JL, we too need to decide that it's time to act deliberately. It is time to act decisively. Like JL, we recognize that sometimes the radical thing to do is the only rational thing to do. It's the lesson of JL. And it's actually today's big idea. Here's today's big idea where we sum up the teaching in one simple phrase. Are you ready? Refusing to destroy your destroyer is choosing to destroy yourself. I'm going to say that again. Refusing to destroy your destroyer is choosing to destroy yourself. Is there an enemy hiding in the tent of your life? As you sit here today, does some hidden habit, some private pattern, some secret sin, some untold trauma, lay tucked under a blanket deep inside your soul? Refusing to destroy your destroyer is choosing to destroy yourself. You say, well, Darren, how do I destroy it? You say, okay, I have a tormentor in the tent of my life, a tormentor that has been robbing me of life and stealing my joy for years, but how do I destroy it? Well, let me answer that by first telling you what I am not suggesting. If your tormentor is another human being, 
I am not suggesting that you walk up to them and drive a tent peg through their temple. If your tormentor is another human being, I am not endorsing taking the law into your own hands. Remember, there was no law during JL's time. There were no authorities during JL's time. What we're talking about today is a more nuanced approach. We're not talking about ending a tormentor's life. We are talking about ending a tormentor's influence. Whoever or whatever that tormentor would be. We're talking about putting a stop to what's stopping you. Because refusing to destroy your destroyer is choosing to destroy yourself. Well, with that clarification in place, let's ask the question again. So how do I destroy it? Ultimately, destroying it will be the work of God in your life. But you're the one who needs to start the ball rolling. And you start the process by acknowledging your situation. First, you need to acknowledge it before yourself. That means you have to stop lying to yourself. Jesus said, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So face the truth. Acknowledge that you can't keep doing what you've been doing. Acknowledge it before yourself. Then, secondly, acknowledge it before God. Now, don't be afraid. He won't reject you. He won't deny you. He understands you and he loves you. He already knows. And the Bible declares that in Jesus, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. So let's then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Don't hide your sin. Don't hide your struggle. Acknowledge it before yourself. Acknowledge it before God. And then thirdly, ideally, when it comes to hidden habitual sins, acknowledge it before someone else. James, the brother of Jesus, made this recommendation. He said, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be healed. So be it a spouse, a counselor, maybe a pastor, a trusted friend. Share with someone the secret struggle within your heart. And then watch as the Spirit of God begins to direct you and heal you from there. Now, I'm sure that just the thought of doing that is causing tremors within you as you're watching me. Hear me. That's the voice of the enemy hiding in your heart. He wants to live another day so he can destroy another life. Learn the lesson of JL. Refusing to destroy your destroyer is choosing to destroy yourself. My prayer for you is that you would have the courage and the clarity of JL today. My prayer for you is that you would see things as they truly are in your life. My prayer for you is that you would come to your senses, fall to your knees, and finally be set free. Let's pray as we conclude today. God, I thank you for your patience in my life. I thank you for your grace in my life. I thank you that you see what I've not always been willing to acknowledge. Yet you've not turned your back on me. You've brought me to this moment. God, I want to be set free. Help me to face the truth, to tell the truth, to live the truth. Spirit of God, give me the courage, the power, the ability to be set free from this habit, this lie, this sin, 
this trauma, this secret, whatever it would be, Lord, I want to put a peg through it. I want to nail it and finally see it destroyed in my life. God, I acknowledge it before you. I acknowledge it before myself. Set me free. Spirit of God, bring cleansing, bring liberty, bring hope, bring life into my life. Maybe you're watching right now and you've never really reached out and had a relationship with God before. Maybe this is all new to you. You need to know God brought you to watch this at this very moment so you could have this opportunity to accept his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Listen, he knows all about you. He loves you. And he sent his son Jesus to earth to live a sinless life and then to give his life as a sacrifice and then rise from the dead to set you free, to pay your moral debt, to give you the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. It's just a gift you need to accept. Like any gift, you need to accept it. It's being offered to you, but have you accepted it? You say, how do I accept it, Darren? Right now, pray with me, agree with me as a way of accepting this gift. God, I acknowledge my sin before you. I acknowledge that I have been wayward, that I have a rebellion in my heart in my life. I'm bound. I'm enslaved by sin. I don't want to live this way anymore. I accept your gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Now come and live within me by your spirit to set me free, to give me power over sin. And give me the courage to tell somebody about this decision to accept this gift before my head hits the pillow tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me to become a follower of Jesus, here's a great opportunity for you to act on this and to allow the Spirit of God to right away show that he is alive in your life. There's a number on the screen right now. Text that number and say, I prayed that prayer with Darren. How do I take the next step? No, don't be afraid. We're not tricking you. You're not joining Broadway Church. We're not going to put you on a mailing list. Someone just will respond to your text and say, hey, here's a, a next step. Here's a suggestion. And they maybe even offer to pray with you over text or offer our help to you in any way that we can. Thank you for being with us today. We continue next week in our Stranger Stories series with another really strange story. God bless you. Thank you for being with us at Broadway Church today.